A stable coin is a type of cryptocurrency that is kept stable by being tied to some other asset's value. But before we look at that more closely, let's back up for a second to orient ourselves in a space that is fast-moving and at times more than a little bit opaque to folks not directly involved with the world of cryptocurrencies and increasingly adjacent fields like finance. Cryptocurrency is a type of digital currency that uses strong cryptography to keep transactions secure. Usually banks and other massive, well-funded institutions perform this function, but in the case of cryptocurrency, it's the cryptography that does so. Some cryptocurrencies are partially or entirely decentralized, in that those who own some of the cryptocurrency or work to produce more of it perform the processing functions usually performed by banks. In the case of Bitcoin, for instance, the act of mining for Bitcoin, which involves setting your computer up in such a way that it provides processing power to the task of trying to acquire new coins, often using gobs of energy to make that computation happen, that processing power is combined with processing power from other Bitcoin miners to perform the validation required to ensure no one is manipulating the system. It keeps anyone from just writing some code that says they have a billion bitcoins and having the decentralized network, which is spread around the world on the computers of folks who use bitcoin, believing that lie. Validation processes prevent that. Bitcoin is actually considered to be the first decentralized cryptocurrency, and it landed back in 2009. Since then, thousands of other cryptocurrencies of various shapes and sizes have emerged, most of them predicated in some way on what's called the blockchain, software that links a bunch of records together in such a way that they can show things like ownership of crypto coins, transactions that have occurred, and even things like contracts that were entered into by two or more parties, so-called smart contracts. The blockchain is permanent in that you can see all transactions that have ever taken place on a particular block in that chain at any point in the future by looking back at the previous blocks on the chain. And because of the nature of the thing, it's not possible to go back and make an edit to add a transaction that didn't happen or show possession that isn't real. This works in part because of that strong cryptography that links everything together, in part because of the transparency that allows folks to go back and check to see what's happened on the blockchain previously, and in part because the ledger is often distributed, located on many computers rather than just one comparably easy-to-target place. A stablecoin is a type of cryptocurrency that generally has these same properties, but rather than serving as a finitude-based asset like Bitcoin, which is considered to be valuable because it's difficult to earn, there's a limited and actually ultimately finite supply, and it's easy to verify who has one and who doesn't. In contrast to that, stablecoins are generally either pegged to a currency or to some other exchange-traded commodity. A stablecoin that is pegged to the value of a currency is often called an unbacked stablecoin. And under that larger header, you can find unbacked stablecoins that are pegged to the value of real-world currencies and others that are pegged to the value of other cryptocurrencies. Now, there are pros and cons to both of these approaches. The positive 
of having a stablecoin that is pegged one for one to the USD, for instance, is that when the system is legitimate at least, you should be able to convert one of those coins for one US dollar via some mechanism. It also means that if you own one of these crypto coins, that coin is sort of just an easy to send stand-in for a dollar that is held in a vault or a bank account somewhere, which means these coins are very similar to having a dollar in a bank account that you can access on your computer. But instead of being held by a bank and being beholden to the costs and limitations of transferring nation-state-backed currencies to other people, including across borders, you have a monetary tool that can perhaps dodge some of those limitations and regulations and costs. The main positive of a cryptocurrency-pegged, unbacked stablecoin is that you are able to keep all of your transactions and activities within the crypto world, perhaps avoiding the traditional monetary establishment entirely, and almost certainly maintaining better anonymity and lower costs of operation, especially across national borders. That said, a crash in the world of crypto will then crash your stablecoin as well. So you kind of have all of your eggs in one basket, despite working with multiple cryptocurrencies. If you have a crypto coin that is pegged to the dollar, on the other hand, you could see a crash in Bitcoin, but not in the coin that you're holding, because its value isn't tied to Bitcoin, it's tied to the US dollar. A backed stablecoin is similar to an unbacked stablecoin, but instead of being pegged to some kind of currency, crypto or real world, it's pegged to the value of something like gold or silver. These coins are more likely to be centralized because it's often necessary to have some entity behind the coin's operation, ensuring that there is a vault somewhere with a sufficient amount of gold in it to justify the creation of new coins. As more gold is added to that vault, more crypto coins of this kind are made. In this case, too, there is usually a means of exchanging one's crypto coins for these assets that are being held if you want to. But generally, the value here is that these coins are stand-ins for trading gold or some other similar resource between entities wanting to do business with each other. And that means, again, it's less likely that you will have traditional banking infrastructure involved. And it's more likely to behave as a hedge against fluctuations in other parts of the market. If the dollar crashes in value and Bitcoin crashes in value, you could still be okay if you own stable coins that are tethered to the value of gold. There are a lot of norms and rules within this space, especially when it comes to regulation. Cryptocurrencies that want to be legit and act within the auspices of the law generally need to get regular detailed audits performed so they can demonstrate that they've got the money or assets they say they have so that those who might be considering investing in the coin can do so knowing that there's actually something behind it. The money is in the bank, the gold is in the vault. Stablecoins are generally less grifter-friendly than other sorts of crypto because of those resource requirements. But that doesn't mean that there haven't been scandals. One of the biggest came to a head in 2018 when it was revealed that research conducted by a financial fraud researcher had scoured the available data on Bitcoin's then-recent surge in price and determined that a huge part of that increase in value, perhaps as much as half of the total increase, most of which took place in late 2017, was due to market manipulation enabled by a stablecoin called Tether. 
Tether is a coin that, until 2019, was supposed to be equivalent to a US dollar, one for one, that parity insured by money stored in banks. Again, one dollar in the bank for every one Tether coin on the market. This turned out not to be the case, and after a bunch of lawsuits and governmental investigations, they eventually changed their claims, saying that they hold a bunch of money, but some of those coins are covered by cash equivalents, often debt that they've loaned out and assume will be paid back someday. The manipulation assessment indicates that someone, perhaps even Bitfinex, the company behind Tether that manages its operations and which is responsible for keeping those real-world assets on hand to back the Tether coin, they or someone else was using Tether coins to buy up gobs of other cryptocurrencies with a focus on huge amounts of Bitcoin. Now, it's alleged that during the period leading up to Bitcoin's huge upward swing in 2017, there was a massive surge in Tether coin production, meaning a whole lot of new coins were minted, were generated, but it's alleged that they didn't have the proper cash backing for those coins. There was no gold in the vault. There were no USDs in the bank, at least not for all of them. This would be the equivalent of a country's mint producing hundreds of millions of dollars to buy gobs of steel without having the sufficient assets to justify that printing of the currency. Buying up that much steel can make the price of steel go up, and because you're using what amounts to fake money to do it, money based on nothing other than the public assuming that it's based on something, that means that you get free steel. But also, and this is assumed to be the real point of all of this by some, if you already have a lot of steel on hand, the value of that steel then shoots through the roof. So it's potentially a double win for those printing the money and those who are already holding stockpiles of steel. Now, the price of a single Bitcoin jumped from around $900 at the beginning of 2017 to nearly $20,000 in December of 2017. If you had a stockpile of Bitcoin, that spike could have been worth billions of dollars. But a lot of that bump was caused by someone, or several someones, spending gobs of tether to buy up as much Bitcoin as they could get. Whether it was Bitfinex or someone else doing that buying, this case, which is still being investigated, even as tether continues to operate, though with somewhat more oversight than before, this case demonstrates that even something that was supposed to be stable and well-behaved, a friendly version of the snake oil-ridden, at times overcomplicated, gold rush-style cryptocurrencies that were the cat's meow several years ago, could also be used for fairly nefarious purposes when leveraged by the right people. What I want to talk about today is a newly proposed stablecoin that is scheduled to hit the market in 2020 at a scale that could, if all goes according to plan at least, become a new global currency, at least for certain entities and for certain purposes. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Facebook has not had the best 2019. Actually, they haven't had the best 2016, 2017, or 2018 either. You could make a compelling argument that much of what's happening isn't really their fault in the sense that much of the most newsworthy harm, ostensibly caused by their platform, is actually being instigated by people using the platform, not those running it. 
The increasing pervasiveness of white nationalists and militant conspiracy theorists is the consequence of harmful societal variables, not a social network that allows you to like things and share videos with other people. Yes, we've all got bigger megaphones these days, but, I mean, we all have bigger megaphones, which doesn't necessarily mean that what we're shouting is the responsibility of the megaphone makers. On the other hand, there's evidence that those megaphones actually do influence what is said, how it is said, and the consequences of that information being spread the way that it's spread on these networks. The incentives that exist within this kind of platform focus on making things go viral, getting more people to click and otherwise engage with content for as many hours a day as possible, have often harmful ramifications that can pervert even innocent-seeming media and business variables. At a certain point, the system itself becomes fuel for a negativity-amplifying flywheel that feeds on some of the things that are flourishing on their networks, and which are arguably, and in many ways, quite harmful to society. These two perspectives exist in parallel, for most of us, to some degree at least, I think. It's easy to see the truth in both, even if we probably bounce back and forth between them, depending on what we're engaging with at the moment, how we feel about the news and other things we're exposed to on our feeds, and what we're being told by our respective influencers, another social creation that's become massively empowered by these platforms, at the moment. Some of those influencers, the more traditional kinds in this case, politicians, are beginning to see the writing on the wall, and Silicon Valley's lobbying dollars are no longer able to completely pull our political system's attention away from the numbers that show folks around the world are experiencing a great deal of discontentment, which ties back to social networks and the companies behind them. So there's increasing pressure from existing power players and would-be power players running for higher office to do something about Facebook and other tech companies' many scandals. Consequently, some politicians want to break up the tech companies, including Facebook, which they claim is operating as a new type of monopoly, one that is largely immune to typical monopoly laws because they don't make money in the same way that a standard oil or even a 90s-era Microsoft made money. Others want to bring down a different sort of regulatory hammer, creating more limitations, regulations, and hoops for these companies to jump through any time they want to blow their nose, much less move fast and break things the way they've grown accustomed to operating. There are valid arguments here, too, that crippling our homegrown tech companies would be tantamount at this point to crippling the overall U.S. economy, because so much of what we produce as a nation is predicated on our digital strength and ubiquity. Others say, though, that we will be better off when we are more friendly to competition. These spaces have been bought up by these monster megacorporations, and as a result, we've got a handful of big impressive titans, but very few tech world demigods worthy of the name. And over the long haul, that is not good, to have all that power so centralized. It stymies competition and may keep the next generation of powerful, important companies from being born in the first place or from growing outside the crushing gravity well of a Facebook or Amazon. The list of Facebook's many scandals is itself quite lengthy then, but it exists within this broader context. The larger conversation here is about these tech companies in general, and this growing distrust is fueled by the slow change of posture from do no evil to something more akin to win at all costs within these tech companies. 
We are also seeing the sluggish realization by users and regulators that some of these companies have become so big, so sprawling, so powerful, that they could challenge many nation-states around the world at arm wrestling and beat most of them without even breaking a sweat. So while Facebook was recently removed from Standard & Poor's Environmental, Social, and Government Index of ethical companies due to their questionable ethical showing over the past few years when it comes to transparency, the treatment of users, and their information, and their corporate alignment with laws and general social values, and while Facebook is still hurting, PR-wise, from the Cambridge Analytica scandal, in which huge swaths of ostensibly private user data were given to incredibly shady groups who may have used it to sway elections and almost certainly used it to manipulate people into buying things. And even though they're still being accused of fueling ethnic cleansing in several places around the world, of hiring a PR firm to personally attack multiple people, including philanthropist George Soros, and of amplifying the reach of misinformation, hoaxes, and true propaganda-like fake news, those scandals are only part of the picture. The meta view here must always include those many, many scandals, plus the larger push to rein in tech companies as a whole. Tech companies that monetize attention in particular, and tech companies that utilize user data to more effectively pull in monetizable attention most vitally. And that, all of that, brings me to the article I'd like to unspool today. This piece comes from MarketWatch, and it's entitled, Why Facebook's Libra Coin Could Become a Big Pain in Your Wallet. I went with this piece rather than one of the bajillions of others that have been written about this topic since Facebook's recent crypto-related announcement because it included an interesting perspective that none of the other pieces I read addressed and which I think sums up what is happening here nicely. But before I get into that, let's talk about what Facebook's Libra coin actually is. On June 18th, 2019, Facebook formally announced their long-rumored entrance into the world of cryptocurrency. They dropped a big old white paper about the project, which is typical in this space, so that folks outside the company can better understand the coin's concept and the technological underpinnings of it and its infrastructure, essentially what makes this project different and more reliable or useful than other cryptocurrencies, and who will be able to play ball when the field is finally built and opened up to the public. Up front, it's important to establish that this is a project that is still in motion, and although we have a decent number of specifics, there's a solid chance that many of them will change by its 2020 launch date. There's also a lot of speculation and detail mining happening as I record this, so above and beyond things changing internally, there's also a good chance that our outside interpretation and understanding of things will evolve in the meantime. I'll definitely be watching for new views on what it all means and how it might fit in with other economic and technological structures, because the assessments have really only just begun. So a lot of what we think we know now could be based on incomplete info or outright misunderstandings or misinterpretations. It's also possible that this whole project could become another one of Facebook's massively over-engineered, laughably underutilized projects that they quietly degrade and dismantle after a few years of failed remixes and rebrandings. It could also, though, dramatically change several important things about how commerce, especially international commerce, operates. And that's just one small facet of what could happen if things go well for Libra and its associated components. That said, Libra 
is the name of the cryptocurrency that Facebook has been working on and will be opening up to the public in 2020. And that name is based on the old-school scales used to measure the weight of coins. And if you've ever seen the symbol for the astrological sign Libra, you'll recall that these same scales feature there. It's a name that implies balance, and in some languages it also implies a sense of freedom, like in the French word Libre. It's a pretty good name, actually, in my opinion, all things considered. The cryptocurrency's symbol, however, the equivalent of the dollar's S with the slashes through it and the euro's capital E-like symbol, is a little more controversial. It's a trio of tildes, the little wavy hyphen-looking thing on your keyboard, three of them all stacked atop each other. The symbol itself doesn't look terrible, but it's an interesting choice, seeing as how the tilde symbol often means, in the context of numbers, approximately. And though I can see the utility here because of how transmitting different currencies into Libra will result in a lot of approximate Libra amounts, more about that in a moment, it's still a little confusing, and every time I look at the interfaces for the apps designed around Libra, I find myself momentarily confused about all the approximations, before remembering that it's a reference to the cryptocurrency, not the more typical usage of the symbol. In terms of how it operates, Libra is a stable coin, and one that is aiming to be ultra-stable. Rather than just pegging its value to the dollar or some gold, it's instead pegged to a collection of stable assets, including bank deposits, short-term government securities, and currencies, including the US dollar, the British pound, the EU euro, the Swiss franc, and the Japanese yen. The idea here is to make it as likely as possible that the Libra has one value, and that it maintains that value over time. So unlike with many cryptocurrencies, if you buy a Libra today, it will almost certainly be worth the same, or almost exactly the same, a year from now. This is a stark contrast to many other crypto assets, like Bitcoin, which have been purchased primarily as speculative assets rather than practical assets for years now. There's still the possibility that coins of that ilk could find day-to-day -day use cases somewhere, but because of their sluggish capabilities in terms of processing transactions, the difficulty in using them for non-enthusiasts, and the immense uncertainty about their moment-to-moment -moment value, that seems kind of unlikely at the moment. The Libra, in contrast, is built from the ground up to be used every day, many times a day, ideally. It's meant to be secure, easy to use, and predictable even boringly so, to the point where, for most of us who might be using these things soon, the experience will feel less like investing in Bitcoin, because again, the investment use case here is very small, as the value is not meant to change one way or the other. The experience will instead be kind of like using Venmo, or Monzo, or Zelle, those simplified versions of PayPal-like apps that make it super easy to send money to someone else or to buy something using a simple user interface, right from your phone or other device, even with a text message or within the chat window on a website. On the consumer end, then, we will see something familiar, rather than something new. The magic happens in the middle, where our dollars or pounds or euros or whatever are converted into Libra. Those Libra are then shuttled to our family members or a grocery store or an Etsy creator, and then that recipient either keeps that Libra as Libra, ready to spend and send in the same way, 
or they convert it into their local currency, whatever that currency happens to be. Alongside Libra, Facebook also announced Calibra, an interface, basically, that people will use as sort of a Libra wallet and as a sending and receiving mechanism for the Libra currency. It's the first app that will be available that will let you use Libra, and as such, it is the app that'll help many people forget that they are using cryptocurrency in the first place. The screenshots of it look almost exactly like every other send money app that I've ever used, except for that weird approximation tilde symbol that they're using as their currency icon. But because Libra is open source, anyone who wants can build their own Libra wallet, Libra point-of-sale system, Libra interface for their favorite online shopping cart, or real-life busking hardware. Anybody can do so. The hope is that a lot of people will build things for this cryptocurrency, because without all that, it would be just Facebook. And even Facebook seems to realize that a Facebook coin wouldn't be super appealing right now which is part of why they pulled together a group of powerful entities to build and support this digital currency, rather than doing it all by themselves. The Libra Association, which out of context sounds a bit like a shadowy organization, something like the Illuminati from a video game or film, but in real life, the Libra Association is a group of, as I record this, 28 organizations and companies that have each paid a minimum of $10 million to be a part of this governing body. Their responsibilities as part of the Libra Association include being a node operator. While many cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are completely decentralized, meaning the work to validate holdings and transactions are spread across the computers of all the people and entities involved in the mining of Bitcoin, Libra is somewhat decentralized, but mostly not. The Libra Association members, as part of their involvement, operate the majority of the validator nodes, meaning they provide the computers that receive word of Libra transactions as they happen and give those transactions a stamp of approval while also documenting them on something like, but not exactly like, a typical blockchain. That means companies like PayPal, Stripe, Visa, eBay, Vodafone, Lyft, Spotify, Uber, Andreessen Horowitz, Coinbase, Union Square Ventures, Kiva, MasterCard, and Thrive Capital, alongside Facebook and the other members of the Libra Association, are each running computers that keep this currency going. Malicious actors, then, might be able to hack a few of these companies' computers, but even if they managed that, it would not derail the currency, because the others will still be up and running, and those other computers will be able to compare notes and recognize that something weird is going on, pausing transactions until they can sort out what was hacked and which transactions are legitimate. So in addition to granting this project a certain air of credibility that Facebook might have trouble mustering on its own at the moment, these other companies also help run the infrastructure and each have a vote when it comes to making decisions about the future of the currency. They also benefit from many of the same financial incentives that Facebook benefits from related to this project. At the most basic level, Facebook and the other entities involved will each receive a share of interest generated from funds that come into their coffers through the Libra project. So when you log into your Calibra software and put $20 into it, getting however many Libra that is worth at the moment, we still don't know what value Libra will start at, but probably somewhere around one to one for either the dollar, pound, or euro, 
But when you put your $20 in, get the right amount of Libra into your Calibra wallet, and then you can send that Libra currency all around the internet without paying much of anything to do so. The fees are expected to be maybe a few cents for a decent-sized transaction compared to several dollars or more using other services like PayPal. But while you're using Libra, the Libra Association is able to put those dollars or pounds or euros or whatever else you give them into the bank, where they can loan it out, earning interest on that money either way. And they will use that interest, however it's earned, to cover the costs of the program. And anything above those maintenance costs, that is profit. And that profit is shared with the Libra Association members based on their participation which for the initial 100 entities that they would like to get involved by the time Libra launches in 2020, scaling up from the 28 that they have now, that would mean 1% of those interest-based profits apiece. So depending on how well-used the currency becomes, this could be pocket change or it could be a great deal of money, especially over time. There will also be incentives to spread Libra. Money that can be earned, probably in the form of Libra coins, that is paid out to services and entities that can convince more people to start using this cryptocurrency, and who are able to keep people using Libra over time. So if you are a programmer, and you build a Libra wallet that people really love, and you bring a bunch of new people to the table, you will be rewarded with these bonuses. And if you can keep them using Libra through your software over time, you will also get a steady stream of other bonuses of what amounts to affiliate fees paid in Libra for getting those new people involved and keeping them involved. So programmers who encourage the use of Libra through their apps can be paid for doing so. Investors who invest in companies that make use of Libra can get paid for doing so. Individuals who influence their followers to use Libra can be paid for doing so. This is built into the structure of the currency. And it's why, in many cases, you'll actually pay more than a few cents when you send money using Libra, because those bonuses, those affiliate fees, come out of that transfer fee. But this also means that these different entities who are being encouraged in this way could be incentivized to lower their own cut, because if your fees are lower, you will be more likely to use their service when you are sending Libra. If App A takes a 1% cut of what you send in this currency as their fee, while App B only takes half that, takes 0.5%, chances are good more people will use App B, meaning they will earn less per transfer, but potentially more overall over time, the person who wrote that app. This is an incentive that a lot of those bigger companies will probably play into over time with their own offerings, which serves as another financial incentive for them to go all in with this project. The higher level benefits for Facebook and these other companies, though, tie back into their utilization of the currency within their existing and potential future business models. For their part, Facebook seems to think that if more people are able to easily buy things online with little to no friction, quick processing speeds, and transaction fees that all but disappear, they will be more likely to spend more on more things more frequently. As the operator of an ad-based platform, and one that has forked out into sub-companies like Instagram, where they've been toying with giving users the ability to click on a photo of someone, and then buy whatever that person is wearing, seamlessly, within the app, this could be a compelling capability. Companies using Libra would almost certainly have steadier sales, as the currency is meant to remove the multiple steps, the high fees, and the processing problems 
associated with some types of online shopping today. It could potentially remove those hurdles from the buying experience. This would also serve to further entrench Facebook's current strengths and reinforce their platforms against future competitors because they would be able to implement this, potentially, better than other people who are challenging their incumbency. This could also open up the possibility of Facebook offering credit or loans to people who wish to purchase things through their platform, while also providing them with a cleaner segue into other business models, like the more privacy-focused communications technologies that they've been bringing up in their PR materials a whole lot of late, implying that they'll be shifting away from public-facing platforms that open them up to lawsuits and focusing instead on more enclosed, private interactions between people who actually want to engage with each other. Engagements that could be augmented by giving those involved the chance to buy products or services right from their chat windows or texting apps. Other companies also see potential benefits in this technology. Spotify, for instance, believes that this currency will be good for subscription-based services, quoting their chief premium business officer, Alex Nordstrom, from an interview that he did with Variety about Libra, quote, One challenge for Spotify and its users around the world has been the lack of easily accessible payment systems, especially for those in financially underserved markets. In joining the Libra Association, there is an opportunity to better reach Spotify's total addressable market, eliminate friction, and enable payments in mass scale. End quote. All of which is business speak for saying that this could help them get rid of some of the current hurdles between them and their potential customers, including those who do not have Spotify premium subscriptions because they are unbanked or otherwise ostracized from the global financial system. Which leads nicely into a big question that I was asking myself as I began research for this episode. What is in it for us? What's in this for non-corporations, non-Libra Association members, non-crypto sophisticates? Just you and me. Why should we care? Is a slightly faster, slightly cheaper PayPal really all that meaningful? I think the most honest answer here is maybe. Though even that is somewhat dependent on your habits, your economic situation, and your level of concern about potential fallout from sudden jolts to complex systems. Let's talk about some of the benefits here, though. First, because there are several, and some of them could be truly wonderful for a significant chunk of the global human population, there are some serious problems that a system like this could solve or could play a role in solving. First among them are the myriad issues that the unbanked experience worldwide. And unbanked is a term that refers to people who, for whatever reason, do not have a bank, do not have access to credit, don't have the fundamental monetary instruments that many of us take for granted in wealthy countries, but which many people within wealthier economies also face. One of the more common reasons for being unbanked here in the United States is not having enough money to set up a bank account, or not having a reliable enough income to justify opening such an account. Folks who fall into this category often end up relying on alternative economic services, like cash advance businesses and other high-interest loan providers, which can trap them in a debt spiral from which it can be incredibly difficult to escape. It also prevents them from enjoying the monetary security and interest-generating potential of having a bank account. There are also many people around the world who are not close enough to banking infrastructure, 
to make practical use of it, or who simply do not trust the banking system for one reason or another. Whatever the specifics, it can be incredibly difficult to function in modern society without a credit or debit card. If you don't have that kind of plastic or some kind of online accessible bank account that can be used to purchase things, to subscribe to services, you are often simply left out of a whole lot of what's happening in the world today. There's no easy way to pay for Spotify with cash. If people in this situation could instead be quickly vetted online and given the chance to store money in Libra, their account could serve as a bank account without the fees, without the difficulty, without a lot of the infrastructural hurdles that can keep people unbanked. It could open up a world of new possibilities for them and for companies with goods and services that might be relevant to them. Another group that could benefit mightily from the advent of Libra are people who send remittances to their family on a regular basis from a job that they work in another country. And that's exactly what a remittance is. Somebody works in one country and then takes a portion of the money that they earn and sends it back home to their family very often. This type of transfer makes up a huge portion of developing countries' financial inflows and makes up a substantial portion of overall capital flows around the world. So it's a huge chunk of all of the money moving around the world in general, but it is a massive chunk of the money coming in to developing countries' economies in particular. In 2018, according to World Bank figures, $528 billion worth of remittances were sent from workers employed in wealthier countries back to their families in developing countries. And that's out of a total of around $689 billion in total remittances of all kinds that year. The companies that provide the majority of remittance sending services at the moment, though, charge an average of about 7% of the total sent. A huge chunk of money, adding up to about $50 billion each year. Libra could substantially reduce those costs, while also giving folks who send and receive remittances the ability to store their income, the value that they earn, and the value that is sent to them in a safe place, unaffiliated with their local currency, until they are ready to cash it out. And in some cases, in countries where the local currency is in a nosedive, for instance, or for people living in neighborhoods where you could be mugged on the way back from your local Western Union payment point where you're picking up your remittance, that storage component could be almost as useful as being able to send money inexpensively. That same capability also has use cases in wealthier countries where folks looking for storage for their wealth beyond national borders often purchase things like real estate or other illiquid assets elsewhere, leading to situations in which vast sums of money are likely to be locked up in these cold storage assets rather than reinvested in the broader economy. This can lead to housing prices in some areas going through the roof due to investments from folks in other countries who are only buying real estate to store their money in what they perceive to be a safer haven, like a London flat or a New York penthouse. We will see how regulations play out with this project, but there's a decent chance that it could serve as a solid storage space for these sorts of resources as well, which would help keep that money more liquid meaning available to be spent spur of the moment without having to go through a whole lot of time and trouble to convert it back into cash, and all of this while also keeping it secure. Libra could also prove to be a boon for anyone wanting to perform microtransactions, 
payments of amounts of money that are currently difficult or relatively pointless to send on the internet because transfer fees gobble up all of your profits. The way transactions work today, you generally need to have a bank involved somewhere along the way. And that, along with any other intermediaries, can rack up fees that grow into the several dollar range, even when transferring very small amounts of money. I personally receive payments of 99 cents online sometimes. And depending on how that money is delivered, I often receive half or less than half of that amount once the middlemen have taken their cut for providing their transaction service. Because of how Libra is set up, though, small amounts could be sent, and the recipient could receive essentially everything that they're paid, even down to the single-digit cent level. You could pay somebody seven cents, and chances are all seven or close to all seven of those cents will be received on the other end. That could be a game-changer for business models that depend on charging for page views, or people who want to monetize attention paid to their products, to their services, to the things that they create independently. Rather than getting paid for clicks and views on YouTube, you could start your own video channel and take five cents from every visitor, retaining far more of that pile of nickels using Libra than if there were a big company like Google between you and your viewers, taking a cut out of every click, out of every view. So the benefits here are potentially quite real and quite interesting, even though there are a lot of legitimate worries flurrying around the financial world about this at the moment. There were several pieces published in the Financial Times in the days after the announcement that have done a solid job of explaining why much of this hubbub about Libra might be mostly just branding. It might be a case of Facebook trying to create what amounts to an exchange-traded fund. So a lumping together of assets and then selling essentially stock shares of those assets and then calling those shares tokens, operating without a license, and then making that seem like a sexy tech product by throwing around a whole lot of keywords despite the blockchain probably not being necessary and despite it not even being a traditional blockchain and despite users being stripped of the interest that they would otherwise gain if they kept their savings in banks. One of these pieces focuses on the fact that the unbanked will probably be left in the cold by this project and could probably be served better via other means, other things that Facebook could do, rather than starting what they claim is a fake cryptocurrency. They essentially run through a list of things that it's smart to watch and pay attention to, and they provide a somewhat biased way of looking at this from the financial sector perspective that I think is a valuable perspective, even if it does have that understood slant. So I'll link to some of those pieces in the show notes if you want to read more about that, but just know that there is opposition to this, and opposition that is couched in an understanding of how monetary instruments work, and how this approach might not even be legal, much less anything akin to a traditional cryptocurrency. Beyond those concerns about the very concept of Libra, though, there are some other worrying potential secondary outcomes, if everything were to go right, that are worth addressing as well. One of the primary concerns that most of us will feel almost reflexively due to the rash of Facebook is creepy and bad articles that have been pervading the news the last few years is that Facebook being Facebook 
should not be allowed to build its own internal economy. Because of how this is being set up, many of my initial fears in this regard do not seem likely. There are a lot of other entities involved, and even if Zuckerberg and the rest of his inner circle decide to act in opposition to their currently held convictions, that this is something that will be kept completely separate from their data harvesting efforts, it seems less likely that they would be able to do so, at least in the way that you might suspect, because of how Libra and its associated structures are cobbled together. Now, that does not mean that it's impossible, but it's worth balancing that knee-jerk fear with other more probable fears, I think. Among that collection of concerns is one that was recently voiced in an op-ed by Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes. Hughes has become, over the past few years, a critic of the company that he helped found, and has said that although he still considers co-founder and CEO of Facebook Mark Zuckerberg a friend, he thinks the man has become too powerful and too removed from the consequences of his actions. Zuckerberg is also able to act almost unilaterally within the company because of how voting rights are distributed, and according to Hughes, giving the company and Zuckerberg the ability to build something that is as, quote, brilliant and frightening end quote, as Libra shifts an immense amount of power into the hands of a bunch of would-be tech oligarchs, but Zuckerberg as the main oligarch in particular. From that piece in the Financial Times, quote, let us imagine that Libra works as planned. Hundreds of millions of people around the world will be able to send money across borders as easily as they send a text message. The Libra Association's goals specifically say that ability will encourage decentralized forms of government. In other words, Libra will disrupt and weaken nation-states by enabling people to move out of unstable local currencies and into a currency dominated in dollars and euros and managed by corporations, end quote. So a weakened currency could become a collapsed currency very quickly. An abuse in the system could quickly spiral into something catastrophic for everyone involved, And it's not impossible that states which have teetered on the brink in recent memory could, with such a currency in place, lose complete control of their own economic infrastructure and be forced to establish a de facto or even official reliance on Libra just to stay afloat. A government then could have its economy taken over by Facebook. So this could serve as a sort of pathway to governmental capture via cryptocurrency. It could be a means, whether intended or not, of crushing opposing economic regulations and leaving Libra as the only option standing. A cryptocurrency controlled by wealthy business people, primarily from the tech and finance world, able to set their own rules and act as economic gatekeepers, replacing elected government officials and all the oversight that comes with such systems. I personally think it's more believable to imagine this scenario as an unintentional outcome, rather than a malicious plan on the part of Facebook and the other companies involved to take over the world or something like that. I don't have any reason to think any of them would want to be responsible for the strife, economic and otherwise, that would arise from pushing a destabilized country over the edge. But I do think that such an unintended consequence could arise, and that it could be to their massive benefit if it did in a bunch of different ways.
Another very legitimate set of concerns were voiced in a piece by the futurist author and systems architect Daniel Jeffries, published on the website Hacker Noon. From that piece, quote, The association behind Libra has the money and clout to write and change laws, and when their Skynet platform boots up, that power will grow with each passing second as more and more fiat money flows into their coffers. Any country that stands in their way will face a flurry of lobbyists and NGOs that will punish regulators and rewrite laws in their favor, or starve that government of brand new wealth while other countries flourish. It's cyberpunk come to life, massive multinational corporations against the power of state. And if cyberpunk tells us anything, it's that corporations eventually win. End quote. He goes on to say, quote, It's hard not to get depressed the more I look at Libra. It's everything I wanted for the crypto community, scalability, usability, and a robust ecosystem of merchants and businesses supporting it with their hard-earned money. They even built in secondary investment coin for their corporate titans, basically a deflationary coin that rewards their oligarchy and gamified money because validators can give away Libra as rewards, just like I've been pushing for years. And yet, it's everything that we should hate and fear. Panopticon money, lack of control, identities linked to everything we do so that companies know where we live, where we shop, who we're sleeping with, who we're friends with, and more. They can track our digital and real life right down to the nanosecond, and they can see through your wallet like Superman, seeing through walls and into your past, present, and even into your future with predictive analytics. They will control the flow of money and make or break businesses, communities, and geographies, end quote. The concern voiced in that piece that we started with today, the article published by MarketWatch, is that by creating a coin, a token, that feels like fake money, the Libra Association may convince people to spend more on more stuff because of how human behavior shifts when we deal with resources that do not feel tangible, that in a literal sense are intangible. Research has shown that the psychological reaction we experience when spending money, something that triggers the same part of the brain that processes physical pain, is not experienced when we spend money via systems that conceal or change the seeming nature of that spending. Using credit cards, for instance, dulls this pain, as does spending via systems like PayPal, or via a string of numbers saved in our Amazon accounts, or paying using our smartphones. Converting our spending to an online system of this kind, then, when that becomes even a little bit common, common enough that we store some of our money in it and use that money to buy things we encounter while perusing the web, that could lead to an immense amount of spending that would not have otherwise taken place. And spending of this kind has short-term benefits for aspects of the global economy, but is overall not ideal because of the amount of waste that it generates, the amount of saving it discourages, and the incentives it creates for businesses to invest in marketing rather than investing in better products. It's also possible to imagine, though, that this crypto scheme could be just as flawed as any other crypto launch, and thus could be prone to scams, grifters, and catastrophic accidents. It could be that like Tether and numerous other stablecoins, it mostly just serves as an enabler for off- and on-platform criminality. It could be that while helping some in some ways, it hurts others in many other ways. At the moment, 
on the day I'm recording this. Lawmakers around the world are calling preemptive foul on the Libra project. France is more or less saying, nope, no way, not going to happen. And prominent politicians here in the United States are asking Facebook to press pause on this project until the political establishment can figure out what it is, what's happening, what it means, and how best to regulate it. The entities that are currently in control of monetary systems are trying to avoid giving Facebook the ability and de facto right to set future economic and regulatory terms or to set the standard for things like online identity verification, which could happen if Libra becomes popular. They're trying to avoid helping Facebook wield any more power than they already do over society and over the engines of global finance. Facebook and other companies like it have long lived by the move fast and break things creed. And it looks like this could be another instance of that ideology slamming into systems that were built more carefully, slowly, and with greater complexity, if also with nowhere near perfect functionality. Just like in the past several decades, it seems likely that this effort could result in a lot of useful new tools, some amazing new broadly accessible capabilities, and a whole lot of broken industries and economic systems alongside all the pre-existing issues that will be further amplified by the possible expansion of an existing, powerful, successful megaphone-making and distributing platform. book that I'd like to recommend today is the first book in a two-book series, and it's called The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Koval. I'm actually reading the second book in this duo of books at the moment, and I'm having trouble putting it down, honestly. Both books are just wonderful. They're very entertaining. They're interesting. The storyline is an alternative history. The change in what actually happened being that in this book series, right after World War II in the early 50s, a meteorite hits Earth. And it hits in such a way that it knocks out a substantial amount of the United States government. But it also creates a runaway greenhouse effect because it hits the water and puts a lot more moisture up into the atmosphere. And so what we have is kind of the current climate of struggling and rushing to try to fix things in terms of climate happening 50 or 70 years before it actually did. But we also have a very different sort of space race and one that arrives a little bit early, and that doesn't really stop because the people engaged in it are not doing it to prove the superiority of capitalism or communism. They're doing it to try to move some of their eggs out of the basket of Earth, trying to essentially make the human race a multi-planetary species and trying to do it before the Earth becomes uninhabitable, as it is predicted to do in a relatively short time in the context of this storyline. Adding to that already interesting concept is the protagonist, who is a computer. She is one of the women who did all of the mathematics that allowed early astronauts to actually go up into space. 
And so this storyline deals with a whole lot of interesting alternative history and science fiction concepts, but it also, as good science fiction tends to do, gets into a lot of social concepts, like those related to gender, those related to race, and those related to a collection of other things that we struggled with mightily in the 20th century, but continue to struggle with today in the 21st century, put into a mid-20th century context. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider checking out that first book in the Lady Astronaut series, entitled The Calculating Stars, by Mary Robinette Koval. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. You can find the dates and times for my last couple tour stops of the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. And you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am technically still on Facebook. You can find me there at Colin Wright. And you can find me on the other social networks at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.